Thanks, Karen, for the Bible reading. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, just first up, uh, just an apology if I start losing my voice halfway through. I preached at another church and the mic didn't work halfway through my sermon, so I was shouting for half the sermon. <clears throat> and I can feel my uh, throat not, not working as well. <laughs> uh, but also, just another clarification from last week. Uh, last week, I mentioned how the structure of a passage uh, might give us clues um, as to what the author wants us to focus on. Um, and as true as it is to hold on to, you know, to pick, pick out certain truths from the passage, um, there is usually one central theme that comes through above all. Uh, and looking back on last week's sermon, I realized I might have come through a bit too strong in making that point, uh, because I don't want us to think um, that unless we get the big point that the author intends, you know, understanding Hebrew and structure and spending lots of time digging through it, uh, that somehow God doesn't use um, those things that um, we, we get out of the passage when we just study it by ourselves um, to, to grow us, right? I mean, I often read scripture um, and, and not come away with knowing exactly what the passage is about sometimes, if there was a central theme that I missed. And I just want to make it clear that I want us to be okay with that, right? Um, because it, it, it can be frustrating, you know, oh, I haven't found the big theme in this passage um, so I just want to make that clear, right? We're, we're continually growing uh, in that area. Um, and another thing I want to point out is, you know, if you have been reading something that you don't understand, um, I'd love it if you guys would come up to uh, myself or Pastor Pete and just ask, you know, uh, we love you know, seeing you guys wrestle with Scripture and asking questions, or even better, maybe bring those questions to your life groups um, and we can do it together in community. Uh, how awesome would that be? Uh, okay. Enough of a disclaimer from last week. How about I pray before we start? Uh, Father God, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the book of Jonah, which is um, yeah, so different from the other books. Um, again, Lord, please be with us today. May your spirit work in us that we might see what's going on, hear you speak to us, and not just uh, increase our knowledge, increase our information in our brains, but allow your word to speak into our hearts and have us transformed into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now, I remember when I was in school, as we were uh, learning about science, I love science, uh, and particularly learning about space and planets, um, one thing that stood out to me was seeing the video of Neil Armstrong uh, stepping out of his lunar module and taking his first steps on the surface of the moon. Who remembers seeing that for the first time in, in, in high school or, or primary school? No one? Well, I guess it's just me then, eh? <laughs> okay, I see, I see some little shy hands. Uh, but even with that terrible image quality, um, even though they were black and white and really blurry, you could hardly tell they were on the moon, I was like, that's incredible, right? We're on, we were on the moon, we were there. But sooner or later, a thought just hit me, which some of us might or might not have before at some stage, and that is, what happened? Shouldn't that moment have been like a massive turning point in the history of mankind, right? That was over half a century ago. They managed to get to the moon decades before the ancient Pentium 486 was invented, right? Who remembers the 486? Uh, shouldn't we all be... <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. I'm not the only old one here. Uh, shouldn't we all be taking holidays on the moon by now? Shouldn't we have colonized Mars already? And thinking about this, I remember just being a little bit disappointed, that moment felt like it had so much potential, it should have launched us into a completely different trajectory. 
right? But after a couple of more trips, NASA would soon give up ever going back to the moon again, not even considering it for another half century. And today, it looks like Jonah himself is experiencing a potential huge turning point in his life, in his story, right? Uh, this will be a pivotal moment in his life, but also in his mission to preach to Nineveh. And so let's take a look at how Jonah handles this moment, which is so full of potential. Now, just to briefly recap what happened last week, uh, we saw that everything in the book of Jonah is ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous that Jonah, the prophet, hears the word of God and then runs in the opposite direction. It's ridiculous that the only people fearing God in the story are those nasty pagans over there. It's ridiculous that Jonah would rather be killed to be thrown into the sea than turn back and obey God. And during all this running away from God's word, what does God do? Not only does the sea calm down for the sailors, as we saw last week, but now God appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, I'm sure most of us are really familiar with the story already, but I just want to quickly say a few things about Jonah being swallowed by a fish. You can't not address this. Uh, now, I don't want to spend much time here because uh, there's been so much debate about whether Jonah was actually swallowed by a fish, right? Maybe it was a whale, not a fish. Uh, some point to a story in the 19th century about a man allegedly surviving several hours in the belly of a whale, and I'm not even sure if that story is legit or not. Uh, some say that Jonah is more of a parable than accurately describing historical events. Um, and I just don't want to dwell on this massive discussion because doing so would mean that we're going to completely lose sight of the purpose of the book of Jonah, right? Because as we saw last week already, the author isn't just stating facts, right? We're not, he's not just filling our brains with information, but the author is using rhetoric, he's using linguistic techniques to, to stir up our emotions. He wants us to actively participate in the story and wants us to do something in our lives as a response. And so as unsatisfying as it might be, all I'm going to say about the whale and Jonah is that, you know, if you believe that Jesus could, uh, God could raise Jesus from the dead, if you believe that God could part the Red Sea, control pagan nations at his will, then how trivial would it be for God to keep Jonah safe in the belly of a fish for a couple of days, right? Now, if you want to chat about that, yeah, again, please come chat to me or Peter. We're happy to chat after the service. But anyway, back to the passage, right? After Jonah gets swallowed by this fish, it seems that Jonah finally gets it, right? He prays to the Lord, his God. Jonah cries out to the Lord in his distress, even from deep in the realm of the dead, Sheol, he cries. Even from Sheol, that, that is the point of no return. You land there, that's it. You're dead, you're stuck there forever. But even there, God listens to Jonah. God answers Jonah. But then Jonah says something that doesn't quite line up with what we saw last week. You hold me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas and the currents world about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Right? But hold on. Jonah, you were the one that told the sailors to throw you overboard. Right? Why is he pinning this on God now? But maybe, if we remember Psalm 88 from last year that we looked at together, uh, even though the sailors were the ones who were physically tossing him into the sea, Maybe it's that Jonah actually recognizes that behind their action, like he's the God who commands the sea and the dry land, maybe he recognizes that it was God behind that. 
It was God who was judging Jonah for his actions. Right? So that's why it's God's waves, God's breakers, which continue to sweep over Jonah again and again. But then the next verse is also a bit strange because Jonah expresses seemingly both hopelessness but hope at the same time. He says he's been banished from God's sight, right? When God turns away from you, this is the God who made you, the God who cares for you, who provides and protects you. When that God turns away from you, then what hope do you have left? And yet, he says something funny. He says he will look again at God's holy temple. It's hard to understand what he means by this. Maybe it's his posture, right? Maybe he will keep looking towards God even in his desperate situation, even though he's currently running away from God, and yet he vows he will, his posture is to look towards God. Or maybe he is saying, I have hope that God, he, one day he will see God's holy temple with his own eyes to worship God in, in God's house in person again. But then the graphic descriptions continue. The engulfing waters threaten Jonah's soul. He's sinking so far deep into the dark waters. It's everywhere he looks, it's it's dark. His head is wrapped in seaweed. Can you imagine that? That's how far down he's sunk. His head is wrapped in seaweed. And the more he struggles, maybe it's like the picture of the more tangled up in the seaweed he gets. He's sunk so low that he describes it as reaching the roots on the mountain, right? The deepest foundations of the earth. He says he's barred in forever, trapped in a tomb, never to escape from. But then there's a crucial word, but, right? When you ever see a but, you're like, oh, wow, you need to take notice. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit, reaching the very bottom of the ocean. Now Jonah says, God is lifting him back up again. When Jonah's life was ebbing away, it's as if Jonah knows he was just about to die. He was just about to let go of his struggle to succumb to drowning. Just when Jonah was going to let the ocean become his tomb forever, he remembered God. He prays to God, and his prayer rises to God's holy temple. And now after God rescues Jonah, now that he's safe in the belly of the fish, This is Jonah's response to God. Jonah will respond to shouts of praise, grateful praise. Just like the sailors in chapter 1, right, when they fear God, they offer sacrifices to God and make vows. Well, Jonah does the same now. He says he will sacrifice to God and not just make vows, but he promises to make good the vows that he makes to God. Now, does this mean he he vows to obey God? Well, we'll find out in the next chapter, so stay tuned. Uh, But as Jonah finishes praying to God, he has one final thing to say to God. Salvation comes from the Lord, or salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a fitting way to end, right, given his circumstances? To be saved from certain death at the bottom of the sea in such a dramatic fashion? Only God can do that, right? But it's more than that uh, salvation belongs to the God because, you know, God just did it miraculously, but it belongs to the Lord because Jonah didn't deserve it, did he? Because what do we see about Jonah's salvation here? Jonah was saved when? While he was actively disobeying God, right? Actively trying to run away from doing God's will. 
It's not even that Jonah repented first and then asked God to save him, right? So in Paul's words, you might say something like, Jonah was saved while he was still God's enemy, while he was still a sinner, ignoring God. And yet, the God who made the seas and the dry land, he calls on this great fish to to save undeserving Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. All right, so now that we've quickly gone through the passage, uh, just like last week, let's step back and consider the text as a whole. Uh, Now, during uh, the week, I sent out a message to see if anyone was keen enough to spot any chiasms uh, in the text. Did anyone have a stab at that? No, that's fine. Uh, Sarah and I was having a little debate to see if if anyone actually do it, but well, okay, I won't say who won. Uh, (laughs) But now, anyway, if you did do so, I think uh, it would be a little bit trickier than last week's passage, right? Because uh, the... the, uh, the chiasm isn't quite so clear-cut. But if we look at the similar actions or themes, uh, we might see a, a structure a bit like this. I don't know if that's... That might not be very clear. Uh, so on the outside, we just have the, the narrative statements, what the Lord did, calling the fish to swallow, and then the fish spitting out. And then next in, we have Jonah's sort of like declaration, right? What's happening, speaking to God, uh, one step in, uh, you've got what God is doing, right? God, God's waves and breakers hurling over him, God lifting him up again. And then you've got this repeated phrase, your holy temple. Um, that, I think that stands out. And then right in the middle is when he sinks down deep into the mountain, right? When he says the earth is about to bar him in forever. So... Let's just say this is the case. You know, it's, it's, it's not as clear-cut as last week's, but if this is the case, uh, what do you think might be the point of the chiasm? That's not a rhetorical question. What, what do you guys think? Any ideas? What is the author trying to center us on, to highlight, to get us to really think about? But what what happens in the middle? He's in danger, yeah. Is it what 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 is special about this point in his in his danger? It's hopeless. That, yes, he's reached the the absolute lowest, right? Um, so maybe it's focusing on that. Everything is focusing on that point, but also. Because of that, we can actually see that this is actually the point where all momentum in the story shifts, right? Um, One repeated word that I didn't actually get to talk about last time was the words up and down. I don't know if you've noticed or heard about this before. Uh, So if we go back to last week's uh, passage, God actually tells Jonah to get up and go to Nineveh. Uh, this is where our English translations, unfortunately, uh, in the translation, it's really hard to, to, to really convey like literally what's going on. But as soon as God tells Jonah to go up and go, Jonah goes down. He goes down to Joppa, verse 3. He goes down, went aboard is actually in, in the Hebrew, he went down into the ship. And then he goes down below deck to sleep. 
And this even continues today in our passage, right? Uh, He sinks down. He continues going down, down to the root of the mountain. And it's only when you get to the center of this chiasm that Jonah finally reverses direction and starts heading up again, right? And it's all because of God. But you, Lord, my God, brought me up from the pit. My prayer rises to God's holy temple. And so the question I ask all the time, I'm sure in our Bible studies you would know that, so what? Right? What's the point? What's the, what's the author trying to, to convey, to highlight for us? Again, any ideas? Why would the author center on this pivotal moment, this turning point for Jonah? Any thoughts? Yes? Absolutely, yeah. It's like he's going down, 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 right to the very bottom where there's no hope. And now all of a sudden he's been given a second chance. He's going up, 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 up again. Very good. Uh, and so there are more clues in this passage that might help us to consider this pivotal point, this second chance. Uh, because from the beginning we're told Jonah was in the belly of the fish for how long? Three days and three nights, yep. Uh, Now, let's just stay with that phrase, three days and three nights, for a bit, because many times in Scripture, this is actually an idiom, right? It's something that um, we often uh, say, but we don't actually mean exactly a precise 72-hour period. Um, So just think of Jesus' death and resurrection, right, happening on the third day, but in reality, it was like, you know, sunset on Friday till Sunday morning. So it wasn't much more than, say, 30 hours, right? It's a bit like when we say, I'll be back in a minute. I don't mean that I'll be back in exactly 60 seconds, but just a short while, right? Uh, But also, uh, three days is actually very significant um, in this context, in this culture, because three days is actually linked with this idea of death. Uh, Three days is usually when the ancient world understood that that's how long it would take a spirit of a person to completely leave the body, right? After three days, the body would begin decomposing, the spirit's gone, there's absolutely no coming back from that. And so, uh, fun fact, if we look at Jesus and Lazarus, think about why Jesus chooses to stay behind, he chooses to loiter around um, so that when he does arrive, Lazarus has actually been dead for four days, right? Yeah, as a, just an extra puzzle, why might Jesus want to deliberately raise Lazarus from the dead after these three days have passed to his, you know, in, in, for the benefit of his Jewish friends and disciples, right? I'll just leave that puzzle for you to think about for a bit. Uh, but back to the text. Jonah himself here in chapter 2 also describes his experience uh, in terms of death as well. He cries out from Sheol, the realm of the dead. He says the earth had barred him in forever already. But most interestingly for me in all of this is something actually funny happens to the fish that swallows Jonah. And again, unfortunately, we don't notice this in our English translations. Uh, But in the original Hebrew, the fish seems to change sex. Right, the, the fish swallow, that f- swallows Jonah is a male fish, 
Dag is a word. The fish that Jonah prays in is a female fish, Dagar. And the fish that Jonah is spat out of is once again a male fish. Now this discrepancy has scholars debating for hundreds if not thousands of years, including the Jewish rabbis. And there are all these theories that there might actually be two separate fish that swallow Jonah, he spat out and swallowed again. Uh, some say it's just a typo. But I don't like the idea that it's a typo because like, um, I, I like the idea that the Jewish scribes, they knew what they were doing. They, they revered the text so much that they wouldn't just have a, a typo and, and not, not notice, especially something, a discrepancy like this. And so... Assuming that it is intentional, can you guys think of any reason why the fish might spontaneously change sex from male to female at the point of Jonah praying? Yep. Sure. Yep, yep. So it could be some linguistic thing going on. Um, according to scholars, they, they don't see that happening. It's not like German or, or other, other languages where the, the noun, depending on its usage, would change genders. Yep. So that, assuming that that's not the case, yep. Are there any other reasons why the author might intentionally give a female fish? Yeah, Ben? Spot on, yep. Exactly. So what, what is the only thing that female fish can do that male fish can't do? Right? It's giving birth. So along with all the, the death imagery uh, that's going on, right? He's describing himself as dying. He's gone right to the very bottom, the bottom of the point of no return. All of a sudden, the moment that he prays, the fish is suddenly female. Right? Now, can you see why... If we just try to think, oh, is this a historical thing, right? Did, did the fish actually become female? Did Jonah... We're, we're missing the point because the author is doing something, isn't it? The, the author is trying to get us to think more deeply about what's happening to Jonah. Right? Maybe it's a new birth. Maybe it's a resurrection. Maybe this even helps us to think about Jesus when he says, the only sign that I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah, right? Referring to his death and resurrection. Maybe. Um, and now, just to be clear, this is not something that a lot of scholars agree on. Um, I just really like it because this, this sort of interpretation just lines up with a lot of other details in the text. Um, but maybe even if you don't agree with, you know, if you're not convinced by uh, what I've just said, what is clear uh, is that this is a huge turning point for Jonah, isn't it? And so the question is, like, you know, just assume that we don't know the ending of the story, assume that we're not familiar with what happens with Jonah. The question at this point will be, well, is this actually going to be a turning point for Jonah or not? So let's just look at chapter 2 by itself. Um, I want to ask the question, is this prayer of Jonah's, is this a good response from Jonah or is it not a good response from Jonah? What do you guys think? Who, who do you think this is a, a good response of Jonah? In the fish? No one? A couple. Okay, no one. Who thinks it's not a good response? Who just doesn't want to answer? <laughs> Most people? Okay, let, let me put it this way then. What are some reasons to think it is a good response? So look in your text, go through it again, 
What, what are some hints that this is actually a good response from Joanna? Yeah, so God's actions, so, so God saving him maybe points to the fact that, okay, maybe there's some, some good going on. Yep. Anything else? Anything in his language to suggest that it's, it's, it's good, what he's, what he's praying? It can be as obvious, as trivial as it can be. Basic observations. Sorry? Does it sound like a psalm to you? Like when you read the psalms, does it sound like a psalm to you? Yeah? Uh, in fact, his prayer mirrors a lot of psalms that we read in, in Scripture. Right? It has the same elements of uh, describing his situation of distress, God's rescue, and then ending with praising God. So in one sense, it's no different from any other psalm of thanksgiving for God. Okay, anything else? What about in his response in the prayer? We, we talked about that a little bit. Is there any, any good signs in the response of his prayer? Yep, he acknowledges God for the first time. For the first time, he acknowledges God's word. Yep. So it's a huge turnaround. Anything else? Okay, so here are some other things that I, I, I sort of spotted. Um, he calls God his God for the first time. Okay, so that it's, it's a personal thing. Uh, he wants, what's his goal? His goal isn't simply just to survive, but he wants to worship God at God's holy temple. So, right, he still cares about relationship with God. That, that's his goal, right? I think that's a good sign. Uh, I think it's similar to what Grace mentioned as well. At the end, as a response to Jonah, God spits him back out in dry land, onto dry land. So maybe, maybe that's a good sign. Like, okay, maybe, maybe God responded to Jonah's response, okay? But what about the other side of the coin? Are there any reasons to think that this isn't such a good response from Jonah? What do you guys think? Anything? Maybe consider the context. There is no repentance, yeah, Sarah. So let's, what, what is the context? It's not like Jonah's this innocent party that God comes along and saves. Because that's a lot of the Thanksgiving Psalms is, is like that. You know, David being persecuted or chased by um, his son, Absalom, and he thanks God for delivering him. 
But Jonah is actually a guilty party. And so he's thanking God, but there's no sign of, I'm sorry. <laughs> where, where, where is the confession? Right? Yep, what else? What else is missing? Or maybe what is there in this context that might, might make you think, hmm, that's a bit fishy, no pun intended. What about his declaration at the end? Right? What are the pagans like? What, what, how does he describe the pagans? Those who cling to what? Worthless idols. What happens to them? They turn away from God's love. Yep, so why, why might that be a bit dodgy? Yep. Yep. But I, right, right, right after that, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love, but I will. You know, look how good I am. I will shout with grateful praise to God. Especially when we think about chapter 1, the ones who are doing the right thing are those nasty pagans who don't worship God <laughs> at the beginning. Right? So maybe already there's like self-righteousness. Okay, so there's, what looks like here is that at best, even if you didn't know the ending of the story, Jonah's prayer is ambiguous, right? Um, if, if you weren't familiar with the story, if this is the first time you've read Jonah, maybe you might be even thinking, oh, this looks, looks like a really good turn for, for Jonah, right? If you weren't thinking that much, on, just on the surface. Uh, maybe Jonah's gone through a true repentance, ready to commit, ready to be born again, right? Uh, but the thing is, it, it is ambiguous, now, I wonder for how many of us might this be a bit um, unsatisfying, maybe? Uh, because we want things to be clear-cut, right, in, in, in our teachings and whatever, for us to say, yes, this prayer is good, therefore, application, let us pray like Jonah. Or, if it's not good, then we say, Jonah is bad. Let's not pray like Jonah. Uh, wouldn't that make life simpler in our Bible studies and, and, and trying to understand the Bible? Uh, so what on earth do we do with ambiguity in the Bible? But my point for today, like in terms of uh, understanding God's word a bit, is actually to, to think of ambiguity in the Bible as something that's actually helpful for us. Because the, the reality is our world is full of ambiguity, isn't it? Uh, there are so many things that just aren't black or white. Politics, ethics parenting even, right? Uh, even for ourselves, I'm sure that there are times where the emotions and the thoughts inside of us just aren't that clear-cut. Uh, don't we look back at ourselves, our, our younger selves, and sometimes realize that what we thought were, was confidently going to be like really simple and clear-cut, when we look back in hindsight, it was actually really messy and complicated, right? And so ambiguity in the Bible actually lines up with reality, doesn't it? Uh, but I also... I think that ambiguity forces us to think harder because we don't just get to read the passage and say, yep, okay, Jonah's good, or nope, he's bad, and then move on. Moral of the story learns. But God's word invites us 
to wrestle, to, to mull over the ambiguity like a riddle. What's really going on with Jonah right now? It invites us to have lively discussions and, and debates amongst one another as we learn from Scripture and try to puzzle it out together as God's people. And so as we wrestle with Jonah's heart as he prays to the Lord his God, again, we might point that upon ourselves to reflect on our own experience. Because as we come to God in prayer, maybe in thankfulness for a blessing we've received from God, maybe, I don't know, a promotion at work, maybe getting into a course at uni, maybe some crisis has been averted, physical healing, restoring of relationship, I don't know, whatever it is. Maybe that's a time to look deeper into our hearts. Because as we say words to thank God, are we simply saying thanks to God for giving us that thing that we wanted from God? Or are we actually responding with proper thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving that goes beyond mere words. Thanksgiving that goes all the way to sacrifice and obedience to God's call. Or maybe do our prayers just simply go through the motions, right? We can say all the right words as if it was taken straight out of the Psalms. We can say all the right things. But are our hearts, our motivations still holding something back from God? That we can praise God without actually meaning it, perhaps? But of course, most of all, if we've properly understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, then haven't we actually gone through a similar experience to Jonah? Uh, haven't we all been dead in our sins, as Paul puts it, right? Powerless to save ourselves with no hope to untangle ourselves from the seaweed of our sins. And yet, this was exactly the state we were in when God sends Jesus to go down to the pit for us for three days. God sends Jesus who undergoes a new birth by defeating death itself so that if we cling to Jesus we too can rise out of the depths of sin and death and experience new life with Jesus. And so as dramatic as Jonah's salvation sounds, we, being, being swallowed by a great fish, isn't ours even more fantastic when you think about it? And so as we close today, again, we look at Jonah. We, we take a good look then at ourselves as well. What is our response to being saved by God? Right? We've said the sinner's prayer Maybe we've gone through baptism before. We come to church each week. We, we sing psalms. We sing songs to God each week. But let's go deeper than that, right? Is there perhaps more ambiguity lurking beneath that needs to be addressed? What might we be holding back to God? What might be that one thing that said, look, God, I will do anything but that. What is that that thing, right? I won't go there. I won't give that much. I won't do this. What might we be refusing to let go of as we live for our God who saved us while we were his enemy? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you're a God who saves us while we were running away from you. You're a God who saves us while we were your enemies, while we were in the midst of our sin with no hope to dig ourselves out. And Lord, as we thank you for that, as we keep singing songs about that, as we say that with our lips, Father, our prayer is that you would help us to do more than simply say that, but to really have our lives transformed with true thanksgiving. 
And so will you do that work in us this week, today, Lord? May you help us to look deep into our own hearts. May your spirit reveal what we might need to deal with so that we wholeheartedly follow you. For the sake of Jesus, we pray. Amen.